Take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Hey, listen, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we want to give you a Bible. In the middle section in the back, there's a little sign that says these are for you and some resources. And on the left-hand side, uh, there are some Bibles. We'd love to give you one of those. You can keep it, take it home, our gift to you. Go grab a Bible uh, and, and pick up your Bible. Turn there to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, 18. We're in a series called Who is Jesus? Looking at this first few chapters of Matthew. Read with me Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we open your word today, we want hearts ready to receive it, ears wide open to hear what you're saying to us. So open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law and instruction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pregnancies can turn your life upside down. Whether they're expected or unexpected, pregnancies can turn your life upside down. In fact, pregnancies can turn your life upside down so much so that even not being pregnant can turn your life upside down. Maybe not being pregnant when you hoped to be or when you thought you would be or even tried to be. It can turn your life upside down. When Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, and that the baby clearly isn't his, his world, his life is turned upside down. But something convinces Joseph to see the story through. Something convinces Joseph to follow this unlikely plan. What we're gonna see this morning, the main idea from this scripture is going to be this. God's divine intervention brings us the salvation we need in Jesus. God's divine intervention brings us the salvation we need in Jesus. And, and here's kind of where we're going to go, a little roadmap for you. We're going to look at a divine intervention. We're going to look at our real need. We're going to look at the servant savior. And then we're going to look at a simple response. First this morning, let's look at a divine intervention. First by looking at Mary and Joseph. This is a Christmas text. I've been in a good mood this morning and I finally told Matthew, I know why I'm in a good mood. I've been in a Christmas text, and I've had an excuse to listen to a little bit of Christmas music this week. And it's been nice to listen to some Christmas music. Andrew Peterson, Behold the Lamb of God, go listen to that. Melanie Penn has an album called Emmanuel. Wonderful. Not, not the classic Christmas songs, but over the last five or so years, I've become great Christmas. And I've just been, I told Carrie yesterday, I said, I'm ready to put the tree up. Let's do it. <laughs> she said, get me through Halloween. I was like, all right, I can get to November 1st. But if you come to my house in November, tree's up. We'll eat turkey beside the Christmas tree. And this is a Christmas text, right? We know the story of Mary and Joseph. 
Luke tells us a little more maybe about Mary's perspective, how the angel visits Mary, and Matthew tells us the angle of how the, uh, the angel is visiting Joseph and explaining to him what's gonna happen. But let's take a step back from that for a second. Mary and Joseph had some certain expectations about their life up until Matthew 1, verse 18. They were looking forward to marriage. They were betrothed, which was a, not a word we use, and it's not quite equivalent to our engagement season of life, okay? Betrothal, it was a legally binding contract to get married, so that the only way that that uh, marriage contract could be nullified was either through death or divorce. That's why you see him say uh, he's going to divorce her, even though they're only betrothed and not fully married yet. That's why it was so shocking that she was pregnant, even though they weren't married, but there was still something that required a divorce. This is the, the way kind of marriage happened in the first century, they were betrothed. It was a legally binding marriage contract entered into before other witnesses and it could only be terminated by death or divorce. So they're looking forward to getting married. Then Mary finds herself miraculously pregnant. Joseph finds himself betrothed to a woman who's pregnant and he knows it's not from him. And in an instant, their worlds are turned totally upside down. But we also learn in this passage that Joseph is a just man. He wanted to maintain his own righteousness, but he also wanted to maintain Mary's dignity. He was unwilling to put her to shame, so he was gonna try to find the most righteous and respectable way out of this betrothal. They were looking forward to marriage, and they were not looking forward to something like this ruining their lives. Then God miraculously and sovereignly interrupts their story to bring about a birth of a baby boy, which begs the question. You're looking forward to marriage. She finds herself pregnant. It's obvious it's not from him. What could have changed Joseph's mind? He, he comes to a place, and the actual verb here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, as he considered these things, is the kind of verb that makes you think this. He made up his mind. As he made up his mind, he lays down and goes to sleep. This is not the kind of phrasing, and it can even make you think this in our English translations of verse 20. As he considered, as he was considering these, as he was thinking about it over time. No, no, the, the way this is written in the Greek is his mind was made up. So, what changed his mind? facing such an interruption and such a disruption, what in the world could make Joseph and Mary go along with such a life-changing event? My goodness, can't, can't we resonate with interruptions in our lives? Having our lives seemingly turned upside down in ways we would have never chosen. Maybe our lives interrupted in ways that we'd like to leave out of our story. I think that's part of what Joseph's trying to do here. He's trying to find a quiet resolution, a way that as years pass, this part of his story will slowly fade. And maybe in 10, 20, 30 years, people won't remember him as the future husband of Mary impregnated outside of marriage. Maybe they'll think of him simply as a good carpenter and a good husband and a good Jew. He, he, he had his life interrupted in a way that he really would like to leave out of, of his story just like us. But when we see our story as swept up in the greater story of God, certain interruptions 
become redemptive. We will see that God is weaving and working something so much bigger than we were trying to author with our own stories. Here are some of the things Joseph learns. First, the angel tells him, this baby's from the Holy Spirit. And second, his name will be Jesus, which is the language transliteration of the Old Testament name, Yeshua, or we would say Joshua, which means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. God interrupted their circumstances and then says, hey, I've got a story, I'm working here. This divine interruption, this divine intervention in their lives had a redemptive purpose and Joseph gets a little glimpse of it in just the couple of things that the angel tells him. This is from the Holy Spirit. This is from God. This is not from Mary's sin. This is not some... uh, bit of suffering that someone else has done to you that God's gonna try to find a better way for it. No, no, this is from God himself. It's from the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you about his name, which will tell you almost everything you need to know about this baby boy. His name is going to be Jesus. His name is going to be God is salvation. So, for Joseph, that seemed to be enough. Because at the end, it says he... Woke up and did what the angel said. But for us, who are not first century Jews, we need a little more context here. And Matthew intends to give us a little more context here by answering the question, what kind of salvation will this baby bring? Which brings us to our second point, our real need. Our real need. In order to explain the significance of this birth, Matthew tells us that it fulfills what the prophet said, which is Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 7. So, what's happening in Isaiah chapter 7 that Jesus is supposedly fulfilling? Well, God's people are being threatened by surrounding enemies. Isaiah breaks up into two major sections, chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. Chapters 1 to 39 are written to a people who are about to experience exile because of their sin and unfaithfulness. Chapters 40 to 66 are written to a people in exile and coming out of exile for a hope about what God is going to do. So in the first part of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet is warning the people, exile is coming. This land God promised you, he's gonna kick you out because you got here and turned your back on God. And right here in Isaiah 7, they're staring down the barrel of foreign enemies. They're surrounded by enemies, so much so so that uh, Isaiah 7 says that the heart of the king shook King Ahaz is afraid. And let's read a little bit of Isaiah 7 to get a picture of it because uh, God speaks through Isaiah to King Ahaz and essentially tells him, look, you're scared of these two nations coming against you? You're scared that these two nations come here so you wanna go create an alliance with another nation to protect you? And here's what he says in Isaiah 7 verse nine. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Trust me. God says, he's telling him, trust me. And then verse 10, which is the context for what Matthew brings up in Matthew chapter one. Verse 10 says this, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. I mean, ask him to move heaven and earth. 
at, and this is God inviting him a sign. So sometimes you'll see people ask God for a sign and it seems to be testing God, like God, I don't know if I believe you. And other times, like this, is an invitation from God. Let me prove my faithfulness to you. Ask me for a sign and I'm gonna give it to you. And Ahaz, in such arrogance and hard-heartedness, says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And I can, I can just feel the Lord fuming at the arrogance you won't put the Lord to the test, but you'll live in sin in the land he brought you to? So God says, fine, don't ask for a sign. I'll give you one anyways. Ahaz doesn't even trust God enough to ask him for a sign to prove God's own trustworthiness. So here's the sign God offers up. He said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary me, Weary men, that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the sign you didn't ask for. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the, knows how, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, the two nations that you're fearful they're gonna come take you over, it's gonna be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as has not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, let's, let's work to translate this a little bit. Before this boy who's born of a virgin, and this boy is gonna be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, before he's old enough to know good from evil, good and bad, he know, know how to make good choices, Assyria is gonna come in and take over. And they're gonna defeat not just Judah's enemies, but Isaiah goes on to say, like a river overflows its banks, you're gonna get more than you bargained for when Assyria comes in to defeat your enemies. They're gonna take over you too. You wanna put your faith in Assyria? You can have Assyria. You think this king of Assyria is gonna be your savior? Let him be. And he'll take over you as well. So in the context of Isaiah 7, this is not necessarily saying a Messiah is gonna come who's gonna save you from your sin. What it is saying is this first Emmanuel is gonna come and it's gonna be a sign of God's presence for your judgment. When this boy is born, let it be a sign that God is present among you to judge you for your lack of faith in men. But what they failed to recognize in this warning in Isaiah 7 is why their enemies were a threat at all. See, in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz and all of the people of Judah only wanted to be saved from their enemies, and they failed to recognize why their enemies were threatening them at all, which Isaiah 1 tells us. God's people were living in rampant sin and rebellion against him to the point where God says, look, even an ox knows who its owner is but my children don't know me. The only reason their enemies were threatening to overtake them is that God's people were not humbly trusting, exclusively worshiping, and simply obeying him. They wanted saving from all that was around them, but not from what was in them. And this is our true need, to not just be saved from our circumstances, but to be saved from the inside out in a way that gives us the strength to withstand whatever circumstances come our way. Doesn't this sound familiar? Sounds like my story, where I would much rather God save me from my circumstances. 
then consider that God's using my circumstances to show me that I need to change. So when God's people in Isaiah 7 are facing takeover from foreign powers, they fail to recognize that the problem is truly in them. And they only see the circumstances and say, oh, we need to be saved. We need to be saved from our enemies. That's just like us. We want to be saved from everything around us and not necessarily what's in us. Save Israel from these enemies is the way they said in Isaiah 7 what we might say, change my circumstances. We're often blind to our own sin, our own failure, and our own needs, even though we seem to be wide awake to the problems around us. So if this is our real need, if this is the kind of salvation this Emmanuel is gonna bring, right? The sign of Emmanuel is a sign not just of external enemies, but internal problems and how God's present. He's working, not in the way you wanted, but he's working. How does God meet our true needs? How does God meet our true needs? Well, Matthew tells us to look at this whole story in light of Isaiah 7. But as you keep reading in Isaiah, you'll eventually get to Isaiah chapter 9, another wonderful Christmas text. You get to Isaiah 9, and you learn about this coming Emmanuel king, right? You may know this scripture from reading it or maybe even memorizing it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the expectation of a child who will be born, even though in Isaiah 7, I think there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment of the Emmanuel born of a virgin in Isaiah 7. I think the near fulfillment is actually uh, comes in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1. Maher Shalal Hash Baz. You know, the name that just missed the cut on your list of Bible names for your children. I actually think that's probably the near-term fulfillment of a, a son is born and then enemy comes in and all this stuff starts happening. But I also think there's a long-term view of what Isaiah is trying to say here. I think if you keep reading, you understand, wait a minute, there, there's gonna be another child that's born that doesn't just fulfill what that boy did, but he's actually the one that fulfills Isaiah chapter nine. This expectation of a child born permeates Isaiah seven, eight, and nine. But then if we continue to read the whole book of Isaiah, the picture gets filled in even more. In the second half of Isaiah, in the chapters 40 to 66 I mentioned earlier, we learn even more about the coming Emmanuel king who's gonna reign forever. And Isaiah paints a very specific picture of who this king is gonna be and what he's gonna look like, and he calls him the servant of the Lord. So we know he's Emmanuel, God with us. We know he's king because he's gonna sit on the throne of David and his government is gonna see no end. But then in Isaiah 40 to 66, we learn that he's called God's servant. 
Isaiah 53 might be the most famous of the servant songs there in Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12, tells in these uh, sections of three-verse couplets of, of what this servant is gonna do. It tells the story of what we just sang, the man of sorrows. Listen to some of Isaiah 53 with me, and this is talking about the same kind, the same person who's gonna be the Emmanuel born of the virgin, the Isaiah 9 coming king. Who has believed what he's heard from us? and To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. There's the baby boy being born and growing up, language again. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and yet rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We just sang that. That's where this comes from. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Listen to what it says he did. Surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him. We said he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is saying that eventually this servant of God is gonna be offered up as a sacrifice to bear the sins of God's people. Isaiah's no fool. He knows the problem's not just enemies surrounding, but a problem of a greater enemy within us. And through Isaiah, God is telling his people, I am gonna send a king, Emmanuel, a servant who will die on your behalf. But this servant does not stay dead because when you get to the end of Isaiah 53, it talks about, in verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away and asked for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. He's dead, they put him in the grave. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He, he, he's in the grave. He's been crushed. He's, he's a sacrificial offering who's died. But then do you see what happens there in, in the middle of verse 10? He shall see his offspring. How can the dead see his offspring unless he's come back from the dead? We know right here in Isaiah 53, he's telling us that this Emmanuel king that's coming, this servant is gonna die He's going to be resurrected. He's not going to stay dead. And all this colors in the picture that Isaiah paints in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Isaiah minces no words. And in verses 18 to 20, he says, Come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The problem's not just the enemies and the circumstances. Your sins are like scarlet, and they need to be made white like snow. So where the first Emmanuel brought God's presence as a sign of judgment because of sin, the second Emmanuel brings God's presence for salvation from sin. You look at the first Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 and 8, 
And you immediately see God's judgment. And that's what happens in the rest of Isaiah through, verse thir- through chapter 39. Judgment on God's people and the surrounding nations. Emmanuel in Isaiah was a sign of judgment. But Emmanuel in Matthew is a sign of God's presence for salvation from our sin, not just judgment for our sin. The very name of Jesus means God is salvation. And in Isaiah, we see that God will bring salvation through someone who bears his presence, Emmanuel, and will take the role of a servant to die on behalf of others to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Now, we go to Matthew 1. And Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the prophet wrote. All this took place. This child that's being born to you, hey, Joseph, you're a righteous man. You've been worshiping as a Jew your whole life. You know the prophet Isaiah, maybe the greatest, most well-known of the prophets. You know the Emmanuel king. You know the servant of the Lord that's gonna come, the Messiah, the anointed one. He's here. This birth taking place in this way, well, why else do you think she would need to be pregnant before you've been with her? Why do you think? It's because God is providing for the salvation of his people in this baby boy. God's presence is here, this time not to bring judgment on his people, but to bring salvation for his people. So, going back to Matthew 1, what's Joseph do? What's Joseph's response? Verse 24, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not. He didn't sleep with her, okay? until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. When Mary and Joseph heard what God was doing with this baby boy, they realized they would rather have God's plan than their plan for their circumstances. When they saw their lives in the context of God's overarching plan, they gladly submitted to the challenge of their circumstances. Rather than trying to protect their circumstances like they could have, like Joseph's plan was, or asking God to protect their circumstances like King Ahaz, I think, wanted in Isaiah 7, or asking God to just totally change their circumstances like we often do, they realized that God was at work in their circumstances to bring about the salvation of the world. Now, it says he got up and he did what the angel told him. We don't know much about Joseph. We have to infer a lot because he's not present at the crucifixion probably means that he had died. Like we don't have any other reason to believe he's why he's not there at the crucifixion of Jesus. He's just not mentioned. So for Joseph to do what the angel of the Lord commanded him, for Joseph to take his wife and not sleep with her, so that it was clear that she's pregnant and this is not from me. We're not hiding anything here. What did that mean for him? It meant embracing the stares and the looks and the shame that would come with walking around with Mary, who everyone knew 
That's not your baby. It meant he was willing to obey God, which meant loving Mary. Tie the first and second greatest commandments together, love God and love others. His desire to love God and follow God and recognize God's plan for salvation immediately meant he needed to love Mary, even though loving Mary would probably have been the hardest thing he was asked to do up up until this point of his life, was to love someone that was carrying a child that was not his. And the God card probably was not a good explanation for people who asked. No, no, it's not mine. It's God. Now that didn't stop the shame or the stares. But he took up being a husband to Mary in the midst of that shame. And in a way embodied what I think Jesus embodied perfectly. He bore the shame of another. Do you know what else it meant? For Joseph to do what the angel commanded him? It meant he had to be a father to a boy that wasn't his biologically. Jesus knows what it means to be adopted. Jesus lived, and we don't know much about his life before he turned 30, but we know his father was not his biological father. So what did they say? Maybe what we say today, you don't know who your dad is, Jesus. It's not him. But what does that say about your mom? Jesus bore all the shame, all the challenges of being adopted. Jesus knows what it means to be adopted. Joseph knows what it means to have an adopted son. And you say, why? Why would he do that? Because of Galatians 4, it says when, when the time was full, God sent forth his son that we might be adopted. Oh boy, say it's not natural for me to call out to God in prayer. It's not natural for me to call out to God uh, as father. Yeah, that's what it means to be adopted. It means the person that you should have called dad and mom isn't there. And through years of training and and loving and relationship, you learn to call out to new parents who love you. That's not the way God made the world to work. But do you understand Jesus lived that? Jesus knows what it means to be adopted. Do you realize how shameful that probably was? Do you realize how difficult that probably was? Unless you were adopted, you might not know. But when I read this this week and knowing our story, it was like, oh my goodness. It's hard to be adopted. It's hard to be seen with parents that people go, hey, you came out of her and you don't belong to him, and, but he's trying to love you anyway. Well, that's gotta be hard. And in one real physical way, Jesus was living the story of adoption for all who would come for thousands of years after that who would be adopted. And he fulfills, in some ways, the storyline of scripture of sons who are adopted, right? I mean, think about Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's household. 
You think about it, in some way, Samuel was adopted into the household of Eli and Eli's unfaithful sons. And then all of a sudden, you get this boy, Jesus, adopted by Joseph. So that Jesus could pave the way for us to be adopted into the family of God. And you say, hey, I, it's not natural for me to call out to God as my father. It's hard to be adopted by God and, and feel like I have a good connection with him. It, it's, it's really hard for me to connect with God. Hey, can I tell you something? Jesus did it perfectly. Jesus lived the adoption story perfectly. And he did it so that we could be adopted by God and by his power in us, learn to be loved by God. I think that's the hardest part about adoption is not just learning to love, but learning to be loved. So the application for us today, I, I think, is multifaceted. First, when we're tempted to ask God to change our circumstances, when some interruption comes, like in Isaiah, like with Mary and Joseph, are we willing to open up our hands and trust that God is at work in a greater way than we might imagine? Are we willing to receive the salvation that Jesus has brought? We talked about last week. God tells us what our deepest need is. Even though we want to focus outside of us, Jesus brings us salvation. It says in there, he will save his people from their sins. So, Maybe you stepped into the Christian life thinking, oh, I love God. My life's gonna get better. Or maybe you're discouraged because you thought, I committed my life to God and it seems like my life's only gotten worse. You know that God does not promise to change your circumstances. I don't want you to begin following Jesus with any misconceptions about that. He does not promise to change your circumstances. He does not promise to put your life here on earth back together in a neat and tidy way that you have already planned out. Instead, what he does promise is that he's going to change you so that no matter what circumstances you're in, you can faithfully face it. That's the promise of God. Not that he's gonna change your circumstances, but that he's gonna change you so that no matter what circumstances you face, you can face it faithfully. And the only reason we can do that is because when we see Jesus, we see God's divine intervention to bring us the salvation we really need. Let's pray together. God, thanks for your word. It fits together in so many ways that I fail to see when I read it and study it. But every time, God, we open this book and every time I revisit familiar passages, I am reminded that you have weaved together a story so miraculous that God, it just begs us to continue to read it over and over and study it over and over so that we can know you more. You are the point of reading this book. Jesus, thank you for coming in the way that you did, that even in the way you came, you're trying to tell us something about who you are. You came humble, born of a virgin. God, thank you for the story of Mary and Joseph and the, in some ways, the example they set for us. God, I just want to confess to you, there's so many circumstances of my life I'd like to change. So many just particular things that I would like to be a little bit different, a little bit better. 
God, would you change me so that I can better face the life you've laid before me? And the only way I can do that, God, is by living my life with you in communion and fellowship with you. And how can I do that, God? By crying out in prayer to you, as Romans 8 says. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And God, I've got to say, it doesn't feel natural for me to cry out, Abba, Father, when I'm going through a hard time in my circumstances. God, I all too quickly jump back to being fatherless. I've learned to live a fatherless life because of how I've lived without you, Jesus. I've learned to try to get by on my own, my own resources, my own intuition, my own intellect, my own strengths, and I'm relearning by the Holy Spirit in me, and I pray that we all would be, to cry out, Abba, Father, it's hard to learn to be adopted. Jesus, thank you for doing that for us. So Holy Spirit, I pray that right now all who are true sons of God, that you would bear witness in their spirit in this moment that we would cry out, Abba, Father. And for all who don't know Christ in a personal relationship this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would convict their hearts to turn to you in faith and in repentance and to receive the salvation that you have brought. We love you, Lord.